Welcome to a special episode of AU Manufacturing Conversations with Brent Belinsky, one which we're running as part of our new Reinventors series, sponsored by business solutions provider Fusion 5. Be sure to check out Fusion 5's free ebook, Manufacturing the New Reinventors, in the show notes. Brad and Adam, thank you very much for joining us here on AU Manufacturing Conversations. It's great to have you on the program. Oh, it's great to be here, Brent. Likewise, Brent. I will start the episode like I start pretty well all the episodes, and that's by asking the guests, in this case the two of you, how did you get here and what do you make? Well, kick off. So how did I get here? Well, I'm a, I'm a terrible mechatronics student who's aspiring to do better. <laughs> and what's my journey through to being the founder and, and director of robotic systems is basically competitive engineering. I was a terrible student, and then I found the true light the glory of engineering through through competition. And what Robotic Systems does today is that we work with other businesses in the mining industry to create new types of technology products to basically create some defensible piece of intellectual property that can disrupt the mining industry. Yeah, and I've come from a, a traditional IT and telco background for the last 25 years. So when I met Adam, uh, probably going on uh, two and a half years ago now, I've never knew about IoT or electronic hardware development and manufacturing. And yeah, the more I got to know Adam's business, the more I fell in love with it. And pretty much started working here a year and a half ago. So, yeah, no, very excited. And it's a bit of a breath of fresh air from the top, traditional telco and IT background. Fun fact, Brad has sold 15,000 phone handsets. So everybody in Newcastle has bought a phone from Brad. There's a lot more handsets than that in Newcastle. But, yeah, so I've sold a lot of hip um, IP's left in the handsets over this place. My dad lives up in that part of the world, so maybe he's walking around with such a phone, who knows? Possibly. <laughs> uh, that was a long time ago. I think most of them have been retired now. So. <laughs> anyway, so yeah, just for listeners' sake, give us a sense of timeline. When did robotic systems get started? A sense of history of the company, please. What did you start doing and what are you doing now and over what sort of time period did that happen? Yeah, so basically the company started in 2012. So it started with me in my parents' garage with a handful of projects, basically, yeah, one thing led to another. It's the only way I can really describe it. And I got basically a major contract here in Newcastle with a company called Oracle Mining, and that was kind of like my big break. That got me the opportunity to onboard my first team member and, you know, fast forward to today, we're a team of 18 you know, engineers and scientists and artists taking on some, some pretty serious problems in mining. And is it exclusively mining or just the meaningful share of it is in mining with a few other things as they come up? Pretty much that. That's the target. So we work with many industries, but we target all of our marketing and messaging to the mining industry. And we've largely built a business around creating new mining tech. And the reason for that is it's basically easier to solve the problem for one particular vertical. And you can do a really good job of that vertical than it is to kind of solve the problem generically for many industries. Like, for instance, we, it's not within our capability to design a consumer product, for instance, or something that's not going to get used as part of an industrial process. So, yeah, we don't take on anything outside of those areas. Well, that, that's uh, mining's our main focus where our target market is, but um, along the way we've picked up ag tech, we've picked up transport, manufacturing opportunities, utilities opportunities. So even though we're focusing our marketing and our go-to-market on mining, we still yeah, cover a lot of different industries. So we've found that I think we're up to our onboarding our sixth and seventh customers in the after manufacturing since Christmas. And that's again across a, a wide range of vertical markets. You'll catch us around at many events, but you'll only find us spending money on mining events. 
So I guess that's probably the easiest way to say it. A uh, marketing or any other budget is a finite thing, so you have to be careful where you spend. Yeah, exactly. Adam, you mentioned earlier, and some of your material mentions that you're a mix of engineers, scientists, and artists. I'm really interested in how the artistic side figures in. Obviously, there's an element to any well-balanced company that has a range of viewpoints. There's a you know, arty element for whatever it's worth and however it's understood. Tell me about yours. Yeah, so the arts component is actually probably one of the biggest components of, it, of what we're doing, and I'll just unpack why. So when I say artistic, we've got within the team sets software engineers, electronics guys, and industrial designers. And the industrial design, and we don't really have mechanical engineers. And the reason is because... Our customers interact with the physical form of the products that they get us to develop. And the first thing they see is how these things look and feel. And so for a lot of the stuff that we're building, the mechanical engineering side of things really really isn't that big of a deal. What's a bigger drive for the customer is how they feel when they see the product. And that's where the artistic component comes into it. And to be honest, out of all of the disciplines that we have here, the artists get the biggest compliments and capture the attention from the customers the most because that's how they interact with the products and they don't and the customers don't care about the software or the electronics they don't actually give a single shit about that unless it doesn't work in which case they really care but they love the artistic component of it so that's why i say engineers scientists and artists okay yeah we just had a customer recently who requested a 3d printout of the actual final product so they can go and then sell that to the market and they said that was probably one of the most important parts of their pre-sale process was actually having something that really looked nice and that people could actually tangibly see and feel. We're talking now, and we'll probably run this story as part of a little mini-series we're doing on the new reinventors. It's themed. It's going to be around companies that have pivoted in one way or another. And I'd like to hear your your story because I understand you. what you're doing now is not exactly what you were doing when you started out. Yeah, look, it definitely isn't. And kind of like I kind of alluded to at the start, when I started in kind of my parents' garage, basically it, it all came off the bat of, you know, being a software development specialist. That's how the business kind of was formed. And I didn't really have much of a plan when I started. Well, I had no plan. I just started writing code. I was good at it. And then I'd get referrals and then I'd get so many referrals that I didn't have enough time. So on board somebody to do that, to, to write code with me. There was no business strategy. There was no plan. It just kind of happened. And what that actually is a recipe for is pretty much a full-on disaster because it was we've been going since, you know, 2012. But the reality is the first seven or eight years of operation were pretty much failures. Robotic Systems was not a business. Robotic Systems was one guy with a lot of helpers. We had no plan. We just lurched from job to job to job with no strategy. If somebody asked us what we did, we'd say everything. We did everything for everybody. We stood for everything and nothing simultaneously and had the financial performance to prove it. We paint you a picture. We were only a handful of guys. We earned very little money. We worked a lot of hours. And the big pivot came basically when we realized that a lot of the things that we pinned our hopes on, basically, I just, just take a step back there, I... Along the journey of writing code and things like that, I got it in my head that we needed to start developing our own products. The problem is I just wanted to develop things. I had no concept of what those products should be. And so I just started building shit that basically happened to come across our desk. And, you know, the cycle would usually go, one of our customers or an adjacent of our customers would say, hey, if you guys built this thing, I'd totally buy it from you. And then we went and would go away and build the thing and then bring it back to the customer and then basically they'd say, oh, I'm not really that interested in this thing and that would kind of be the end of it. 
So then you're kind of left with this thing you've half built. You don't really know what to do with it. So you kind of keep going. <laughs> and the sunken cost fallacy sets in. And essentially that went on for years and years and years, you know, about seven or eight years of doing that. And then we kind of hit rock bottom and realised, you know, we were earning 50 grand a year each. We're over 30 years old. We're doing all this crazy technical work. And, you know, really that's not right. Something's seriously wrong with this. And so it was at that moment we reevaluated what we actually do and really had to go away and basically sit on top of a mountain and take some acid and try to work out what the point of my life and the business actually was because this is not it. It's, I can't keep going like this. And kind of taking that, taking that time and that mountaintop acid path led me to what we actually do today and realised that we have done some good work over the years. The problem was the way in which we were selling it was wrong. It was very wrong. And what we needed to sell was not the products that we were building. We needed to stop doing that. We needed to start selling the journey of product development for people that actually had a real fucking problem. And that was what the big pivot was three years ago now. So that actually led us to the point of being awarded the 77th fastest growing hardware business in APAC by Deloitte, getting four patents, all that sort of good stuff came from that pivot. So the history of the business in summary has been mostly failure and then recent success. <laughs> well, I want to say seven years of hard learnings and three years of acceleration. So we've gone from four staff three years ago to 18 today. We've just hired actually six staff since Christmas. So I've had a really good growth period and had really good success. Uh, when I met, first met Adam, I had to always pull out the uh, Steve Jobs famous quote of, you know, as an entrepreneur, you need to fail to succeed. And obviously the uh, first six or seven years I've got attributed to that, but we've got really turned the company around and we're doing some really great things across Australia at the moment. Yeah. So a lot of just crying in the shower, like <laughs> not really knowing what to do. Well, That's the secret to success. We've all been there and we've all, well, not to speak for everyone, but many of us have done the vision questing as well, and that could be beneficial for sure, whether it's acid in a mountaintop or mushrooms in a forest, you know, you pick your own. <laughs> do not endorse drugs on this podcast for the record. So, Unless you're on a vision quest. <laughs> Yeah, time and a place. So we've done the pivot. So tell me about the business-to-business focus now and how does it work? You've got a thing you do well. You've identified that after all the pain and suffering. And what happens now? A customer comes to you. They have a problem. You say, okay, we can do that. We can't do that. This is not a real problem. Excuse me. How does the process work? So basically what we do is somebody comes to us with a crazy idea or business case that they've got. And the first thing that we do is we actually run them through a validation process to actually validate if their idea is actually any good. And I basically take all the learnings from the projects that we've had success with and projects that have been abject failure, specifically a lot of the ones that I was doing when I was coming up with my own product ideas, and basically use that process to validate if this customer should actually build this thing. And we spend most of the first initial month or so working with somebody on the business case because that is the most important part of it. The tech is kind of secondary. And we spend a lot of time kind of shifting our customers' focus from being, rather than let's just jump in and start building something right now, okay, let's actually spin it around and we're going to start talking about the business case. And so we do five weeks of business case development and product design, and then we go into an actual execution phase. That's on the design side of the business. So on the manufacturing side, we have a very similar process where we come in and assess a person's prototype if they bring us a prototype. Well, the other thing we're getting quite often now is uh, companies coming to about 90% of their development and they need 
helped in taking that final 10% to productization. So if people bring us a prototype, we need to actually see it at our L6 or 7 before we are onboarding into manufacturing. And then we onboard into our manufacturing, so we create assets around production and ordering and all those systems that we've got in place now to make it a repeatable and scalable manufacturing product. And then the other thing we're finding a lot of people coming to us at the moment, as I said, was that 90% of product development. So they want us to help them take it from that 90% to actually a product. So we've got a slightly hybrid approach now for that as well. So we can help people productize whatever they're trying to develop. And then we've got a systemized process to, to bring them on board as well. So you're not actually manufacturing in-house in a sort of assembly type sense. You're mainly getting processes and then handing them over to the customers so they can do a decent job of the production at their end. No, no. So basically... When the part of the supply chain that we deliver is basically final assembly, QC and logistics. So we're essentially the single throat to choke for the contract manufacturer of industrial tech. So we specialise in the final assembly and manufacture of low volume, high value pieces of industrial tech hardware. So what that looks like is under 100 units per year things that have a, a fairly complicated manufacturing process with some sort of calibration at the end to ultimately become a piece of uh, industrial slash scientific equipment. And then we also provide uh, warranty and support for that product as well, which is pretty different to most organisations we hear. So, yeah, we actually take full ownership of the product and then support of that product into the field. So some of our biggest customers, yeah, that's their biggest value point is that we take ownership of their product and the support after it moves our production. We'd like to take another moment now to acknowledge our sponsor for this episode, Fusion 5. Be sure to check out Fusion 5's free ebook, Manufacturing the New Reinventors, in the show notes. And so this may have been a question that was better asked towards the beginning of the episode, but we're here and you can't turn back time, etc. I've read some things about the Outback UAV challenge, and I'm always interested in the idea of engineering challenges because I can think of a short list of companies that have had their origins in such things. I wanted to know if you could talk us through the role of that in your professional life, please, Adam. Robotic Systems is one of those companies that's origins are rooted in competitive engineering. I think there's some essential ingredients that make engineering competitions unique in their ability to create the conditions for new businesses to spring out of. And I'll, I'll just kind of touch on a few of them. And just to asterisk all of this, this is from my personal perspective. Everybody's is going to be different. I'll give it from the perspective of a student that struggled to complete a mechatronics degree that's kind of ended up here. It's a competitive engineering is what got me started. And so the reason I kind of got so excited about the competitive engineering is because it gives you a goal, which is kind of your own personal goal. It's different from like uni or work that is something that kind of has this very well-worn path you essentially have to step down exactly and kind of puts you exclusively in the driver's seat. And because it's your thing and it's a competition, you're motivated by only yourself to do it. So there's no cheating. There's no rushing through stuff. The timelines are generally quite long. And so what that allows you to do is if you want to learn something, for instance, for myself, it was software. It allowed me to set an objective of what I wanted to do and then dwell for as long as I wanted at the technical steps along the way. And that allowed me to actually learn very deeply about what I was doing. And so I created this very strong foundation for making things. And even though I was ultimately unsuccessful in the competition, 
That's not the point of doing the engineering competitions. And that's the biggest difference I found. Like a lot of students that I now coach in competitive engineering, they don't want to enter it because they're afraid of losing. And I want to shift everybody's thinking on this because the reality is the competitive engineering competition is not about the win or loss of the end. That's amazing. You should shoot for that and go for that and, and go for that glory. But the reality is what you definitely win is fundamental skills, which you will then be able to apply to real world commercial opportunities. And whether that's developing your own product or your own business or being part of a team that's doing something great, these skills will carry forward for that. And that is what you will definitely win by participating. So I think that's something that's overlooked and I like to share it with everybody. Every industry group that I kind of come in contact with is shaking them down for for some assistance in setting up the next engineering competition. We run them here in Newcastle, had really good success and raising Newcastle's profile. And and I think that Australia could be known as the place of these high-profile engineering competitions. The guys in the States do it. They crush it. They put up million-dollar prizes. They make these phenomenal competitions and they make these phenomenal technical development for their population. So I think there's something similar that could be done in Australia with their own flavour. And, yeah, I think if anybody's wondering about getting involved in competitive engineering, there is no downside, particularly if whether you're a student or, or you're after university, there is no downside. It's all very approachable and the worst thing you can do is not be in it because that's when you, you lose the guaranteed loop. Anyway. Yeah, Adam presented to Careers Day last month at Newcastle University and was asked that question around how they can be uh, better chances of employment and yeah, gave them the same advice. Go out and get involved with the university your teams, get their own projects going and that sort of stuff. So yeah, really valuable advice for any uh, up and coming uni students about to join the workforce as well. Or even people that are in work that want to level up that maybe aren't getting the opportunity in their current role, you don't have to be at uni to do these competitions. There are other competitions you can do and you don't have to then wait for someone to tell you it's okay. You can just start doing it and then you can apply for a job somewhere else. So it's not just for students, it's for everybody and so go for it. Yeah, if you're passionate about it, yeah, definitely shine through and, and the employees will be able to see that as well. Yeah. We didn't get a chance to speak for the 50 Most Innovative Manufacturers campaign, but I was quite keen on the project that you guys submitted and that did quite well. I was wondering if you could share with listeners something around the Build Assist solution. I'll start off with the Build Assist solution. We run quarterly innovation sprints, so we've been doing that for a number of years now. So the Build Assist solution come out of one of those sprints where we wanted to basically create a system that was video-based that gave our customers and our employees the reliability of a video-based manufacturing process and then also a QA extension for a 9001 ISO certification. So out of that design improvement goal script, we created that data system and we've been using it ever since. And then as we onboard all our new customers, we create video systems for them as well, which they own the, the content for. And then we actually apply the same 9001 quality process for those systems which we're building under as well. Yeah, and I guess so just from a technical standpoint, what it's all about is essentially closing the loop of quality. So it's an overhead camera system that sits above everybody's manufacturing bench. And as the guys move through their manufacturing processes, the cameras are automatically triggered and capture quality control images of the devices being built and synchronise those images against that particular device's serial number against its against that particular manufacturing step straight to the cloud and a customer-facing portal. Yeah, we've already used it a couple of times to determine whether it was a manufacturing issue 
whether it was a design fault or whether it was a user issue, we were able to ascertain by going back and look at the video footage and the quality ISO images that it was actually a design fault and then it was actually someone else's design that they brought to us from manufacturer. So then they've gone and rectified the design fault and now fixed that problem. Without that system in place, they wouldn't have been able to probably easily identify that situation. Brad mentioned before that tape was running, it was a discussion we had on LinkedIn a while ago, that your team had been on a recent trip to Europe to install a new prototype for a customer. At this stage, you weren't able to talk about the project, but is this something you can talk about now? And are international projects a major part of your business? So I probably can't go any further into that particular one yet. But what I can say is that despite being a relatively small business in the mining industry based out of Newcastle, we currently export to nine different countries and support projects in nine separate countries. And the reason that kind of we are able to do that is all about mining as a global business. So all the tech that was being developed here in Australia has applications all over the world and there's demand for it all over the world. And so if you're going to go into the mining game, you have to kind of be prepared for this sort of stuff, as I've now learned. And we're right now we're gearing up to head to Africa with another customer, as well as expanding our footprint in the USA. So lots of cool stuff happening. Unfortunately, under NDA, but fingers crossed we might be able to start talking about them towards the end of the year or the next year. So we're pretty excited and awesome as this technology has been developed, uh, not only in Australia, but here in Newcastle. NDAs are what they are and story for another day. It's absolutely our bane of our existence because we have all this cool stuff that we work on, but it all gets tied up in NDAs and we don't get to say anything, which is horrendous. So I'm sorry, Brent, about that bit. (laughs) I speak to a lot of smaller manufacturers and even some bigger ones that do some really cool work and confidentiality is their bread and butter. So they have to respect the wishes of their customer and keep what's meant to be under wraps, under wraps. Yeah, but hopefully early next year we might be able to do this again and it will be very excited just when we actually get um, allowed to speak about it. So tell me, please, what are the four patents your customers have been awarded for your work? So got one for vision systems, and that's basically camera systems for a company called DSI Underground, developing it's part of a paper series that they released and a new piece of technology that they developed. We developed on their behalf for measuring rock bolts and the impacts of rock bolts at ultra-high speeds. We've got one for the aforementioned system that's gone into Europe, and then two for agriculture for our weed geolocation system. All the patents are in for machine vision, essentially, and artificial intelligence. You look to be doing quite well after a difficult seven years, and it seems like... Three quarters of a decade. <laughs> oh, you know, everyone makes... <laughs> but now you seem to be doing reasonably well, and I assume that Like everyone else, you have ambitions to go beyond that and keep growing. Tell me about what the next few years will bring for you, hopefully, if all goes to plan. And, yeah, something on that, please. We've got a big vision, and the big vision kind of comes back to why everybody at Robotic System shows up for work every day. And it's, you know, to be involved in the coolest, highest-profile projects. And the way in which we do that measurably is by building cool stuff. That's our whole reason. That's why people get up out of bed every day is they come to work to build cool tech hardware. And so what's the coolest bit of tech hardware out there? Well, to us, that looks like satellite system. And so our big company vision is that by the year 2030, robotic systems is a point where we can design and build a satellite system that goes into space and works for 24 hours. If we can do that, what would robotic systems look like? What would a business look like that could actually pull that off? How many people would it have? What facilities would it have? What sort of customers would it have? And so what would all of those things kind of look like together to pull that off? 
yeah, that's the big vision. That's kind of where we're going, levelling up the tech, levelling up people, levelling up facilities to get there, to build the ultimate industrial devices. Yeah, and I suppose in a more shorter-term thing, as I mentioned, we've hired a lot of people since Christmas. This time last year, we had one design team. Now we've got three design teams, so we've proven that we can scale successfully between one to two and now two to three. So hopefully next year we'll, we'll be in a position where we can put on a fourth design team. As mentioned, we, we're onboarding you know, six and seven customers to manufacturing, so that's starting to go up pretty quickly And after a, a bit of a slow patch after COVID. So hopefully, yeah, we'll expand our manufacturing and uh, look at moving into a bigger facility next year. So, yeah, that, that's more of a shorter-term goal. To close, we ask a standard question of our guests as we ask a, a standard opening question of our guests. And that closing question is, is there an issue within manufacturing that's not getting the attention it deserves? That's a big question. Yeah, it's a big question. To, but to give, give it probably a short and sharp answer is I think there's a lot of shifting happening in manufacturing right now. And what I personally view as the future of globally competitive Australian manufacturing is that manufacturing in Australia will be completely decentralised. So smaller specialist houses focusing on nailing one part of the supply chain rather than kind of behemoth-sized companies trying to do everything for everybody with, you know, a broad range of generalist assets. So I think what could get some more attention and policy support would be support for smaller manufacturers in Australia, not to necessarily grow to behemoth size, but rather to focus on one part of the supply chain. So what I mean by that is a CNC house that just is focused on nailing one part of the realm of the CNC world, not kind of trying to do everything for everybody because that doesn't work. And so I think that some policy around that, I think would really help us become spread the word of what is actually a reality that works and kind of move us away from the legacy style manufacturing that's done in Australia. Yeah, so I was lucky enough to spend some time with Ed Hizik last week, uh, MP for Science and Industry, and we actually uh, portrayed those exact sentiments to him that I suppose most of the innovation and uh, a lot of the companies that I've been exposed to around Australia are small businesses, typically under 20 or 30 people. So they're the ones that are doing the most innovation and doing the cool stuff, but yeah, they just need more support, I suppose, to get there. And, you know, there's a big theme at the moment from government about manufacturing stuff back in Australia. And it's great to look at the big business, but obviously a lot of that pioneering innovation is coming from small businesses like us and be interesting to see how that can be better supported and promoted. Well, guys, that's everything I want to ask you, sir. Adam and Brad, it's been a pleasure. Thanks for taking the time. Yeah, no worries. Thank you for having us.